I love Bitcoin. I love talking about it. I love thinking about it. So it's so cool. <laughs> okay, well, if that enthusiasm for Bitcoin doesn't entice you to listen to today's episode, I'm not sure what will. That was CoinShares Meltem Demurers, and obviously you'll hear more from her later in the show. But first, I have to make a confession. I don't love talking or thinking about Bitcoin, and that's just because I honestly don't know that much about it, and I've been able to live my life up until now without having to know that much about it. That said, a lot of people are talking about Bitcoin this week in particular because for the first time in almost three years, the price of Bitcoin has hit $17,000. So maybe I should start caring about it. What's behind the rise and what's next for cryptocurrency? That's what we'll dig into today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Okay, so Brian, three years ago, I feel like we were in this same place, right? Well, it was a similar place in terms of enthusiasm for Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies. I mean, I think like the hype was kind of exploding. Bitcoin had been around for a while, but the price had shot up. People were getting into, you know, issuing different special types of coins. And, you know, it was becoming like a mainstream topic you might get in your taxi. I don't know if you remember the old days when we used to take taxis and leave our houses, but your taxi driver, your Uber driver might start talking to you a bit about Bitcoin. So, you know. I actually remember at that same point that the PTA at my kid's school was accepting Bitcoin for donations for the school. So I felt like that was peak Bitcoin, but then I didn't hear that much about it for a while. And now here we go again, right? You do live in Silicon Valley, though. I don't I think do. <laughs> most PTAs were taking Bitcoin. Wait, that doesn't happen everywhere? No, not everywhere. Not yet. But maybe we're moving in that direction. Brian, do you hear that? What is that sound? That's the sound of bubbles popping. Our colleague Robert Hackett feels pretty confident that we are back in bubble territory, that this run-up in prices we've seen over the past few months is not going to last. We're kind of entering a new crypto bubble right now, potentially. I mean, if, if history is any uh, good teacher. But I mean, since mid-March, when broadly the markets crashed, the price of Bitcoin has now more than tripled. So, Robert, the term bubble is kind of a loaded term. I mean, that suggests that valuations are way beyond what sort of rational sense might suggest. Does it feel like a bubble? Does it feel like, you know, there's irrational exuberance driving the surge in cryptocurrency prices? I'm sure I won't endear myself to Bitcoin investors by saying this, but yes, I think there is a lot of irrational exuberance. Uh, and I do use the term bubble, uh, even though we're going to have to wait to see what happens, whether it pans out. But Bitcoin, given how many bubbles we've seen before and how quickly the price is rocketing up right now, it seems to have all the hallmarks of each last bubble that we saw with Bitcoin. So even if it's irrational or partly irrational, what's driving it in your opinion? I mean, I think we've seen how tech has performed in the markets over the past few months, and Bitcoin is tied up in that. Uh, like Tesla has been one of the best performing stocks this year. And a lot of what is fueling Tesla's rise is also, I think, fueling Bitcoin's rise in that 
it doesn't really have to do with the fundamentals of the stock. It really has more to do with the kind of cult-like following that's developed around it. Leaving aside, you know, whether the price is inflated right now of specifically a Bitcoin, how much realer is the world of cryptocurrency now, you know, than it was a few years ago in terms of being like a viable, useful product for people? The amazing thing about Bitcoin is that nobody really knows what it is or what it's trying to be. A lot of people have a lot of theories about what Bitcoin is. I mean, Satoshi Nakamoto, when he wrote the Bitcoin white paper that started this whole thing, he called it a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And it is most certainly not that today. It is a terrible form of payment. Other people have said that it's a good store of value or that it will just be like money software. And now people are saying that it's going to be a hedge against inflation. They say that central banks are printing money like crazy to combat the economic ravages of the coronavirus pandemic. And our money is going to become worthless. And so we need something else like Bitcoin, which has true scarcity. But I mean, the bottom line of this whole thing is that people are going to invent all these different theories to back up their reason for investing in it. And it has become like scripture, people debating, you know, the, the reasoning or the meaning behind it. One of the biggest indicators for whether Bitcoin's price is going to go up is how much search interest it's getting on Google or how many mentions it's getting on social media. And so all these sorts of weird debates about what Bitcoin is or how it's doing and whether it's valid or not really just go to serve the hype bubble. Based on everything you're saying, I don't, I mean, I know you said if I want to make money, I should care about Bitcoin or if I want to make a quick buck, I guess. But I don't see how this, at this point at least, in the US where I live, impacts my day-to-day -day life. Here's the thing. I mean, the Fed has slashed interest rates to basically zero. U.S. Treasuries are not giving yield. The stock market appears by all measures to be overheated. So where are people going to put their money? I mean, the conventional wisdom is that you should have a stock and bonds portfolio diversified 60-40. Um, but if bonds aren't giving you any money, where are you going to make money? And Bitcoin, people are hanging their hopes and dreams on it as a potential outlet for risk and reward. One thing I think that we've seen anecdotally and with data this year with the pandemic is that cash has become less useful to us. People are migrating towards digital payments in all forms. And I'm just wondering, you know, as we think about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, is that part of what's driving interest? Has cryptocurrency become a viable way for people to, you know, make payments or have practical usages emerged that maybe the everyday person hadn't started to see yet, but are becoming a little more common. There are people working on this sort of technology and trying to solve these issues that have made Bitcoin a clunky payment system. But for the most part, payments are not the way that Bitcoin is finding a receptive audience. Uh, even with PayPal now enabling people to buy and sell Bitcoin and a few other cryptocurrencies, Actually, in their terms of service, in the first iteration of their product, they're not allowing you to push this Bitcoin to other wallets to send it anywhere. It's strictly enabling you to buy and sell it. So really, the interest here is as an investment. And it's become a kind of uh, key feature of a bunch of different apps from Square's Cash App to Robinhood was early to adding it. Uh, and now PayPal, with their broad reach uh, having added it, is just bringing it really mainstream. Hmm. So there's 
a whole network of startups that formed to try to implement these practical use cases for cryptocurrencies that you're saying people are migrating away from. Does this whole sort of reckoning mean that the traditional uh, financial companies will sort of integrate cryptocurrency in the ways that they're useful and it, it reduces the promise of these startups that were banking on kind of a revolution in finance? I think one of the big narratives over the past few years has been bigger institutions getting on board with Bitcoin and with crypto. And you've got a lot of institutional investors now getting involved, big time investors. What's funny is that, you know, Fidelity, the, the big financial firm, they put out a, a study that surveyed institutional investors between November and March. And uh, they found that the biggest reason institutional investors said they liked Bitcoin was for uncorrelation to the stock market. But as soon as the survey ended, that was when the pandemic really struck the U.S. and both the equities markets and the market for Bitcoin crashed here. The other two reasons people say they like Bitcoin is because it's an innovative technology play and because it has high potential upside, which if you read Benjamin Graham's The Intelligent Investor, uh, sort of the Bible of value investors, he basically says, when you hear those two things, you should run for the hills because that is the hallmarks of speculation. So you're saying we should all go buy some Bitcoin? Well, <laughs> if you have some money that you don't mind gambling with, feel free to. I think there is a place for Bitcoin in people's portfolios. I mean, because I think there is some level of risk and speculation that is warranted, but you should go into it with no illusions about it. You know, this thing is really a shiny object and it is purely a speculative thing at this point. I've got a lot of hopes on digital currency for from a long-term perspective. Uh, I think that money, like everything else in the world, is going to get eaten by software. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but it's going to be programmable, it's going to be flexible, and it's going to do all these sorts of things we can't even dream up at this point. But for right now, Bitcoin is a gamble. It's always really interesting to talk to Robert about cryptocurrencies and this entire blockchain world because he's been covering it for so long and in such great depth, like he has great perspective on it. At the end there, he was beginning to sound a bit more bullish about the future of digital currency. But for this episode, I had a conversation with someone who is definitely a true believer in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Meltem Demirs, Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares, has a really interesting background. She started out in the oil and gas business and was a trader before she got into cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And she's really been one of the premier figures at explaining the world of Bitcoin to the mainstream investors and big Fortune 500 companies. Her company, CoinShares, develops products and strategies for mainline investors who are looking to get exposure to cryptocurrency. And I should add that she very clearly does not think that we are seeing a Bitcoin bubble here. Meltem, you have been in the digital currency world and ecosystem and really dove in early. We're having a, a new moment with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. The prices collapsed earlier this year when you know we had a lot of economic chaos. Now they're surging again. Explain to me why that is. Why are prices <laughs> surging right now? Yeah. Uh, well, I'll start by saying, uh, you know, Bitcoin, in my view, is not having a moment. It's been having a moment for me personally for the last seven years since I started working in this industry. 
And when I started working in this industry, you know, Bitcoin was $250. But more importantly, leave the price aside because price sometimes is the least interesting thing about Bitcoin. What was funny was in you know, 2014, 2015, you would go into a room at a bank, you would go into an investment committee meeting and you talk about Bitcoin and people would look at you as though you were crazy. And I think what's really changed over the last seven months in particular, since the start of the economic crisis and really the recession that's been fueled by the global pandemic, what I think has been really interesting is just the changing narrative around Bitcoin. So like CoinShares, we manage $1.4 billion in assets on behalf of a large investor base, which includes institutions and asset managers, but also individuals. In the early days, it was largely individuals who would buy our exchange trader products, who would hold our exchange trader products. And now it's such a diverse mix of people. But more importantly, the conversations we're having when we speak to a sovereign wealth fund, a large asset manager, they're educated about Bitcoin. They've been researching it. All of the major banks are producing research coverage on Bitcoin. JP Morgan, Citi, Goldman Sachs in the last three months have all written robust research coverage about the asset class. So in my view, what we've seen is more of a normalization of Bitcoin as an alternative asset which has a place in an investment portfolio. Whereas prior to this year, and particularly prior to this summer, I think most felt Bitcoin was really still quite esoteric. It was perceived as a bit more risky. Uh, but now I would say a lot of that has been de-risked. And I think largely there are three key narratives that are going on, and I'll just quickly run through them. One is the broader macro context has changed. So uh, in, in March, you know, maybe you owned a 60-40 traditional portfolio of 60% equities and 40% bonds, right? Now that portfolio is no longer viable for most people. You need to reallocate. And so allocators and individual investors alike are looking at their portfolios and saying, wait a minute, in a sustained zero interest rate environment where potentially rates could even trend negative, with target 2% inflation and housing prices rising faster and tech stock prices rising faster than ever before, how am I allocating? So all of a sudden, everyone's looking for portfolio diversifiers. People are looking for alternatives and they're worried about inflation. When you say that, um, you know, as of March, a lot of people had that sort of classic mix of equity to fixed income. And now that doesn't work. I mean, why do you say they need to reallocate now? I mean, you know, interest rates are incredibly low, so you're not getting much yield, but stocks have done great. But why that moment where you have to now look for more alternative assets? Stocks have not done great as a whole. I would say certain categories of stocks have done well. Core equities have been hit really hard and have not quite recovered yet. Tech stocks are booming. So what I think is happening is really a bifurcation where a lot of the growth is in more speculative sectors. People are really looking for growth, whereas traditional value sectors, core equities, you know, utilities, energy, things like that are not growing as quickly and in some cases have not even rebounded yet. Historically, a lot of the concern about Bitcoin is concern around volatility, right? So people would say, you know what, maybe Bitcoin is interesting. Maybe there's a long-term growth story here. It's too volatile. And so one of the things that happened that I think is so interesting is a really psychological phenomenon. Across the board, we saw drawdowns in assets of all types of 50, 60, 70%. 
So all of a sudden, in the context of the broader market, Bitcoin was no longer crazy volatile. In some cases, it was actually, for the first time, less volatile uh, than equities markets, which is pretty interesting. But I think where we're at now, you know, we're we're breaking 17,000. We're breaking all-time highs, yet nobody's talking about the price or the highs. Everyone's talking about allocating. So I think there's a lot more room to run here. Well, maybe in the sophisticated investment group, people are talking about allocating. I think in a broader sense, people are talking about Bitcoin now because the prices surged. Because, you know, three years ago, we had Bitcoin mania. We had it on the cover of Fortune. Everybody was like, wow, this is the moment for cryptocurrency. And we have to understand, you know, what it means. And and then the price did fall back dramatically. And now it's surged to this new high level. And some people are calling it a bubble or another bubble, but you mm-hmm. don't buy that. You don't see it as a bubble. You see it as, uh, as you know, just part of the progress of this asset class. The word bubble gets thrown around very casually in a lot of conversations about a, a lot of different assets. I think one of the things that's really unique about um, cryptocurrencies and asset class, and particularly, you know, Bitcoin really is the flag bearer here. It's 65% of the overall market cap. It's the asset that's most widely held, best known, has the most liquidity, has the most robust markets around it, most robust market infrastructure. What I think really is interesting here, and what I always talk about, is there are cyclical sort of trends and there are secular trends. If we're talking about Bitcoin, Bitcoin on average moves in a cycle every two to two and a half years. So there is sort of a Bitcoin cycle that we we go through. And uh, within those cycles, right, each successive cycle, we have a new high and a new higher low, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll hit a peak that's a high and then a trough will come. The trough is higher than the prior average price. So the cyclical trend in Bitcoin can be quite volatile, but the secular trend, right, over the last, again, the last seven years, we've gone from $200 to an average price of 9,000. Who knows where we'll end up after this cycle? I think you really have to view it in that context. And then the second piece I'll just quickly mention is when we saw the dot-com boom, right? I was not investing then, nor do I claim to. But if you go back and you look at what happened with Amazon, with Microsoft, with IBM, with all of these companies that were also a part of the dot-com boom and subsequent bust, Amazon hit its high in 1999. And then investors who had allocated to Amazon were out of the money for the next seven years. Amazon has grown exponentially. So I think, again, there are going to be cycles. In Bitcoin, the cycles are maybe a bit more volatile. It's a bit like riding a roller coaster. But the secular trend, certainly in my view, mimics and will continue to mimic the growth we've seen in dot-com stocks and other emerging sectors um, that are popping up all over. So long term, you know, you have to have a a bit of a strong constitution as an investor. But I think absent the six Locality, if you smooth out the curve, um, it certainly, from a secular perspective, is a beautiful trend line. All right. So suddenly this is feeling more like a finance podcast than a tech podcast. And that is not what I signed up for. Didn't you say that Meltem is also a venture investor? Is she investing in crypto technology? She is. And she sees all kinds of interesting opportunities, everything from building up the technology for trading cryptocurrencies, which is developing fast as the amount of liquidity grows, to really much more surprising things like 
finding ways to take advantage of the fact that huge amounts of energy are needed to produce Bitcoin, for instance, to do the mining that creates Bitcoin. And so if you can find a place where there's excess energy and translate that into Bitcoin producing computing technology and power, you know, then that can be a way to arbitrage and find some investment opportunity. So she's, uh, you know, she did a great job of like opening my eyes to all the uh, new opportunities that are out there. So Robert and Meltem both seem to think that one of the biggest promises cryptocurrency holds right now is as an asset, an investing tool. But our final interview for today is the CEO of a company with a very practical use case for crypto. That's right. Brad Garlinghouse is CEO of Ripple. I'll let him explain what they do. Ripple is a technology company, really an enterprise software company, focused on solving a cross-border payments problem, where today you literally have the dynamic where if you're sending, let's say, U.S. dollars and you have whether a vendor, a small business, or a, a friend you want to send money to, and I'll, I'll use London as example, British pounds, that experience would take typically several days and it would be pretty expensive. You know, the average remittance cost uh, is around seven to 8%. That's a global number. You know, that means if you're moving, you know, $300, you're paying $20 to do it. And so Ripple is selling technologies and providing technologies to the industry to do real-time cross-border transfers that are extremely fast and extremely inexpensive. As part of our tech stack, we use blockchain and crypto digital assets, specifically XRP, to solve that problem for customers. So explain what is XRP? XRP is a digital asset. It's a, a decentralized technology, open source, very analogous to Bitcoin. You've been speaking pretty candidly recently about potentially moving Ripple, which is a U.S. company, outside of the U.S. to London or to Singapore or Japan or another country where you have a clearer regulatory picture. And I'd like to hear from you. My understanding is that part of the, the issue in the US is that there's so many different regulatory bodies that might regulate you differently, that it's confusing. So explain you know, what it is you're, you're looking at and what would actually force you to make a move. The important thing here, I think, is that the U.S. right now is out of sync with other major economies like Japan and the U.K. and Singapore, where you do have a single clear regulatory framework that has provided a level playing field and that has supported innovation for companies in those markets. Here in the United States, we don't have that same level playing field. In fact, certain parts of the U.S. government have given an advantage to technologies like Bitcoin and like Ether, which are actually controlled by China. And I think it's you know, the irony is here we are, I think, unintentionally enabling uh, certainty around the regulatory dynamics of Bitcoin and Ether by declaring they are not securities and allows people to use them without concern for what might happen in the future. They've been given the, the kind of good housekeeping seal of approval. But I think we lose sight of the fact that we are in a race with in particular in this case, China, I fear and I've tried to bring attention to the fact that what we're seeing happen with 5G networks today are really the outcome of decisions and dynamics that happened years ago. We lost the 5G race, and I, I think we're in danger of repeating that mistake 
in the battle over the global financial infrastructure around payments. So on the topic of moving, I mean, believe me, we certainly wish this wasn't something that we were thinking about. But if we don't have clarity, I have an obligation to our shareholders. Without that clarity, it's it's limiting our success. And so all we're asking for is a level playing field. And if we need to move to another country to get that, then that's the path we'll have to take. So you say that uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum are controlled by China. Could you just clarify what you mean by that? Are you talking about the mining? That's exactly right. So getting back to that uh, level playing field idea with China, explain the dynamics of that. I mean, you analogized it a minute ago to 5G, but what are the stakes involved in how China is moving ahead in cryptocurrency versus you know, this sort of confused uh, regulatory approach here in the U.S.? Well, look, I, I think that, again, from my point of view, China has been leaving others in the dust in the race around digital currencies and blockchain technologies. I think like what they did in 5G is they made some bets about where the world might be going and said, hey, you know, based upon where we think the world's going, let's make investments. Let's invest in these technologies and kind of get ahead of the market. And I think that's exactly the same thing we're seeing happen here. I think this does matter now more than ever. In many ways, the pandemic has accelerated the world's move away from paper money and producing the world's first central bank digital currency, which is something that China is well ahead of where others are. I think it could put China in the driver's seat really to steer the future of payments and currency in a world where we are seeing evolution and change. And again, I think I don't actually criticize the Chinese Communist Party. I'm actually... I'm impressed. Like they're being very strategic and very focused on dominating this. So we've just gotten through an election, uh, a very fraught election here in the U.S. Um, Are are we through it? I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. I'm kidding. The results of the election are clear. Not everyone is accepting them, but um, they're pretty clear. So we're going to have a new administration in the White House. What does that mean for cryptocurrency to have a Biden administration, at least for the next few years? I think that a lot of what we're talking about are are already bipartisan issues, and I don't see a fundamental shift, regardless of who is in the White House. But, you know, I I also think we're seeing some in the Biden administration that have had a very progressive driving innovation. How do we use these new technologies? I mean, look, even using immigration as an example, you know, the remittance market is shockingly expensive to those who can least afford it. And if, if we care about immigration as a topic, if we want to provide less expensive and faster solutions for those communities, that's definitely something that you know, I think will probably become more, more front and center during a Biden administration. Do you think that you know, we're likely to see the changes that you need to see to keep Ripple here and to keep other companies like Ripple from wanting to relocate? You know, I, my honest answer is I don't know. You know, some of these just comes back to the reality that we talked about earlier, you know, the U.S. Department of Justice put out a report just a couple of weeks ago that highlighted, I think, eight different regulatory regimes in the United States that, you know, in some view, XRP is a virtual currency. The FinCEN, a department of the U.S. Treasury, has said XRP is a virtual currency. DOJ has said it's a currency. Others have said they view it as a property or a commodity. But until the SEC opines and has clarity, and then I still think you're kind of at this standstill and, you know, it's, what's frustrating, I think, is it literally was over two and a half years ago that the SEC gave that good housekeeping seal of approval to Bitcoin and to Ether. And, you know, since then, we've been, been at this 
kind of standstill, if you will. Do you think, though, that the broader acceptance of Bitcoin and, uh, you know, the more people that become familiar with cryptocurrencies helps you in a way to get acceptance with XRP and Ripple? Does just rising awareness of how cryptocurrencies work give you a boost? You know, Brian, I'm glad you asked this because I absolutely believe that all boats rise here. You know, I don't view what Ripple is doing as somehow competitive with Bitcoin. I hold Bitcoin. I want Bitcoin to be successful. And I, I absolutely believe that all boats rise. And I, I'm a huge advocate and try to be a champion when I see different projects in the broader blockchain and crypto ecosystems, you know, getting traction. I, like, I, I'm an absolute advocate of that. In fact, look, Ripple has invested a lot, not just in the XRP ecosystem, but other parts of the crypto community. Uh, and we will continue to do so because I do think all boats will rise. Okay, Michal, what do you think? Are you more interested in Bitcoin than you were at the beginning of this episode? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I want to become part of this crypto community that Brad talks about. I, I haven't gotten an invitation for some reason. But uh, I still have a lot of questions. And I think one of the questions is that even as we hear and read about more banks and governments and, and businesses kind of embracing crypto to various extents, you know, it seems like that's actually quite a departure from what I read about the intention originally when Bitcoin, you know, sort of bubbled to to my, on my radar, right? Yeah. I mean, I think Bitcoin is a really interesting vehicle for people to project on it all kinds of hopes and dreams. You know, there's the purist who saw it as a, as a purer form of money that's not controlled by states, you know, that's a, that's an open source way of creating value. And then there were the very practical people who looked at the technology underlying it and said, we're going to use this to change the world and to cut out friction in the financial system and to break the hold of, that the big banks have. And, you know, I think some of the volatility that we see is this is still pretty fresh, relatively early technology in a lot of ways in terms of developing a infrastructure around it, you know, especially for investing. And so it's natural that there's going to be this volatility in, in the price as well. And I think that one common thread that we saw from all the people that we talked to was bubble or not a bubble, like this is continuing to progress and continuing to sort of permeate the culture and the financial world in ways big and small. All right, Brian, I think you've convinced me I will start paying more attention to Bitcoin fluctuations because we all know I need one more thing to keep track of. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll be busy eating turkey, not paid for by Bitcoin, but we'll be back the following week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written by Megan Arnold and edited by Wyatt Orm and Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Feel free to send me any Bitcoin you have collecting dust around the house, by the way. <laughs> I, have, I have gold coins from Hanukkah. <laughs>